All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of ATP. We have a really awesome episode today. Our guest, Francisco Buhanda, is going to talk a little bit about the subject of masculinity. And so when I say the subject of masculinity, I I do not mean necessarily the difference between femininity and masculinity, but more so what it is to be a man and what we have preconceived societal expectations and what that looks like. And, you know, listen to the interview. You'll hear a lot. But even before that, Dorian and I are going to talk a little bit about the subject itself. With that being said, before we go into any of that, we are going to talk about some of our fantastic sponsors that we have on the show. We're going to start with FNX Fitness. So if you haven't heard of FNX, if you haven't heard of Phoenix, they are a health and fitness supplement and apparel line whose goal is to provide the best possible products to inspire people to rise up. With protein supplements like Restore to help build muscle, rebalance with a green blend that will help optimize your health and revive for testosterone support in case you're having a hard time recovering from those difficult workouts. FNX can all help you out there. So as a personal trainer, I'm pretty much switching over myself to all my supplementation through FNX. So far, I've loved the products I've been using from them. If you would like to try them out for yourself, use code ATPODCAST for 15% off of all of the products that they have in the store. That's freaking awesome. We're going to switch up next to our favorite Seattle-based technology startup for any type of custom fit footwear. You guessed it. We're talking about Prevolve. Prevolve is a 3D foot scanning and 3D printing custom fit footwear designed for your feet business. I love it. I love the idea and I love what they can do for you. So if you are looking to finally get a pair of shoes that fit perfectly, visit the website at www.pre-volve.com. There you can schedule a foot scan, learn more about the story of Prevolve, and even download 3D shoe models if you'd like to 3D print them for yourself. So, all right, we're talking masculinity today. Dorian, you and I, both self-identifying males. I think this is something that has uh, been a big part of our lives growing up. I think we can both admit that. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. I, I can't wait to get into this. And uh, honestly, I, I'm really excited to hear the interview today. Yeah, man, it's a, it's definitely a good one. I really enjoyed speaking with Francisco. He is incredibly knowledgeable, but more so than that, he uh, just has a quality of his his speech that is really impressive. But I mean, you know, let's just go ahead and toss it out right here, right away, Dorian, is what does masculinity mean to you? You know, uh, you asked me that earlier, you know, when we were talking about kind of doing this episode and I thought about it for a long time and, and honestly, masculinity really doesn't have much meaning to me at all. And it's not even something I really uh, think about. 
And I think that's just from, from my personal background. I, you know, I grew up with uh, a lot of women around. I grew up around aunts, uh, cousins. I mean, it was mostly women. So for me, masculinity was never really a big thing that got tossed around for me. It's not something I really think about often because Mm -hmm. some of the traits that, you know, I think a lot of people associate with masculinity for me, I just see, you know, as strength. Yeah. 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 You were talking, I mean, we were talking about that earlier, right? Is that you were saying a lot of the things that like people identify as masculinity, you said you were like, yeah, identify that as just like a trait that I saw in everybody that I met people that were in your life confidence, you know, strength, like skill, um, tact, like all these things are like very, you know, and we actually talk about this in the interview. They call, he calls it John Wayne syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is amazing. It's a great way to put it, right? Is that you have to be strong, silent, confident, you know, all these things, right? And that's, that's how a man is supposed to be. But first and foremost, A, that's just not, that's not how it is. We're all- you know, all, all the treats that you just described to me that that describes my mom. So yeah, it's right there. That's, I think that says a lot. Right. And I think, I mean, it's just really, to me, what masculinity has meant is comfort with you as a, as your own person, as a male, and even more so like further than that, just as a person, right. It doesn't necessarily mean confidence. Although many of us would like, I mean, I can say for myself, right? I would probably like the confidence portion of it to come in as a pair with just being a male, right? That'd be awesome if it was that easy, but it's just not. And the reason I even talked to you about doing this subject and the reason that we decided to do this is because I actually had multiple people reach out to me and ask for us to do this topic. And I think that was actually a really interesting point was that they reached out to me in private, right? And I want, and Dora, I'm going to throw this at you as well, right? Is I feel like it's a very important distinction that there are guys who wanted to talk about this subject, wanted to speak to me, other people, have professionals talk about it, but they messaged me in private and to make sure that I give them that continued privacy. I'm not going to say who it is, but they message me in private because for society's standards, I believe that men are taught not to ask for help. They're taught not to ask for any type of guidance in that fashion, right? They're just supposed to know. How do you feel about that? You know, I I think in that sense of masculinity that you're kind of speaking to and, uh, you know, maybe part of the, you know, people being uncomfortable talking about is, is really more gender roles to me. I, I don't think mm-hmm. of that as the topic of masculinity. Um, okay. I think that as kind of gender roles and in, in kind of where our society puts genders, but mm-hmm. I think a big and a, and a really unique thing for us, maybe not so much in our adolescent years, but definitely as, as we've gotten older here is that line has really become blurred as you see, you know, I think as a kid, you know, you think of masculinity, it's like, Mm -hmm. superhero movies like cartoons it's like you're watching batman right you're watching superman like ninja turtles like that's masculinity but i think that now we're seeing in in a lot of different media forms today that that's you know they're not holding that to just that's a male gender thing this is a male team of superheroes males can only Mm -hmm. be superheroes right we've got 
I mean, you got the the cool Wonder Woman movies coming out now. You Captain mm-hmm. Marvel was who came and saved the day for all of the Marvel galaxy. So I think something really unique that's just going on right now is we're we're really starting to see that being challenged mainstream, and it's it's making that not as prevalent as it maybe was when you know we were growing up in the nineties. Yeah, and I think I like that. That's an important distinction. Is you're right. Is that it is gender roles, right? Um, and I think the the important part to distinguish between gender roles and masculinity, and at least I'll take myself once again personally here, is I think that we were taught that masculinity was that was equated to gender role, right? Like you are a man, you have to be masculine, right? That's just how it was in the nineties. And you're right. When I grew up, I remember people were speaking of strong, silent types. Batman is a perfect example of, you know, the, the caped crusader, the guy who saves the day, the silent, strong type who doesn't give away his good deeds to the world, but just does them for the goodness of society. And when you grow up thinking that's how you're supposed to be, um, and I think this was something that other people that I was speaking to alluded to, was that when you are taught so frequently that this is how you are supposed to be, this is what you're supposed to think, right? That it makes it really difficult to stray away. And if you start to, you start to really beat yourself down consistently. So I don't know about you, Doro, but how many times throughout your childhood, and maybe you grew up in a different situation, so I don't know, how many times did you ever just kind of beat yourself up for not being a man? Um, so <laughs> I, I don't want to like always throw this back at it, but um, you know, I think specifically for me, just, you know, the people I grew around, I, you know, the, the superheroes and kind of the stars that you're seeing growing up, especially I'm looking mm-hmm. back specifically to like being a kid in the nineties, like most of that, um, most of those heroes and stuff, it, it was never to me realistic. Okay. Um, a lot of times I think that that had to do with really you're seeing one character type, right? It, it was typically a white male is coming to save the day. And I don't want to mm. bring it back to the race thing, but no, 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 you know, no, that's, I didn't, good I didn't necessarily do. identify with that. So yeah, I, it, for me, it never really held true as this is the only person who could do that because yeah. I mean, I grew up in a house where I was told you can be whatever you want to be. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what you want to do. Just do mm-hmm. pick something and do it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I think, to be honest with you, man, we, in the interview today, we talk about gender roles and masculinity when it comes to people of color too, right? And I think that's an important right. distinction that you bring up is because for me, as a white male, I could look at Batman maybe a little bit more easily and identify as him because he's always descript- described as a white male. Right, I think that's I, important. I think it's a little different how, you know, you kind of view those heroes and you realize someone doesn't look like you and then it's, you know, mm-hmm. you start having that internal conversation. Is it possible for someone who looks like me to do that? And I, I don't know, from a very young age for me, I think I realized there's things you see on TV and things you see in the movies mm-hmm. and there's the reality. So I, I personally don't think I ever had a super big struggle with it. I think, you know, one of the other things we see commonly with masculinity or, you know, being a man is you've mm-hmm. got to get out there. You've got to play sports. You've got to be tough. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I recall I was probably in the first grade. It was the first time I had someone like actually like a lot older than me bullying me. I think I was on the bus. I had glasses at the time. 
And some nice. kid was a fifth grader. I was a first grader. He takes my glasses, you know, holds them the whole time we're in the bus making fun of me. He gets off a couple stops before me and I get home and I, I actually go to my cousin's house and, um, you know, my older cousin saw that my glasses were broken. She was like, what happened to your glasses? Told her the story of what happened. And she walked with me back to his bus stop, which was actually at a community center. Uh -huh. She pulled this kid out of a community center. And oh, my God. Ass. <laughs> I mean, and she was maybe three years older than him. So, like, oh, my God. That's, like, one of the things that stands out in my childhood of actually being, like, oh, God. Like, I didn't realize someone could just inflict damage on somebody like that. And, yeah, like, that really stands out to me. And, you know, once again, that was, that was my female cousin. And yeah. I mean, she was one of the toughest people <laughs> growing up for me that I was like, I don't want to mess with her. She will hurt me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect example of what I did not grow up around. Right. Um, because I think maybe it was a little bit more prevalent in my, I would say a hundred percent more prevalent in my family is that like standard gender role identity, right. Where it's like you, you saw more of like a consistency of like women acting daintier, I guess. And I, I would say, honestly, and, and except for my mom, once again, I think you brought up your mom earlier, but I'm going to take my mom as an example as well here. My mom is one of the strongest people I know. She would, if, if I did something wrong, she would pull my ear so hard that I would literally be lifted off the ground. Like not even strong as like a, like actual physical strength thing, but right. she, she, for lack of a better word, essentially raised me by herself growing up and so i watched my filter of life go through a single mom um raising me from when i was seven all the way until pretty much i was 18 right and so it was for me i saw strength as her as well i think it wasn't it wasn't necessarily something with my immediate family it was a lot of like outside stuff where i unfortunately didn't have a female cousin that came and beat the shit out of my bullies. I just, I, I got bullied and I'm just like, man, that sucks. Like <laughs> I'm, my glasses aren't being fixed by nobody. So well, I, mean, I was, she was the person it. who taught me how to fight. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, I think it's important to distinguish that there's a ton of really powerful ass ladies out there as well. Powerful, strong, you know, they do it all. Right. They know how to and, fight. And I, and I think at least from, you know, from my perspective, that's not taking anything away from my dad uh, at all. But, you know, my parents weren't together growing up. So I, I did spend weekdays with my mom, weekends with my dad. But, you know, if you had to ask me who I was more afraid of getting in trouble by, it was definitely my mom. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe, you know, my dad will hit me, I'll get in trouble. But my mom was like psychological warfare. Like, I remember <laughs> I got suspended once for getting into a fight at school. My mom had to come pick me up in the middle of the day. It's probably like 11 noon. So she's got to leave work early. She's pissed. Mm -hmm. And we get home and I'm thinking like, you know, it was so worth it hitting that kid. Like, sure, I'm going to get hit. But he was like really asking for it. And yeah. I just remember we got home and my mom was like, all right, go to your room, go to bed. And I was like, wait, what? Like, yeah. You're not going to hit me? And she's like, no, go to your room, go to bed. And I'm like, it's, it's the daytime. What do you, what do you, what do you mean go to bed? And like that punishment was like, that stands out for my childhood of like the day yeah. I had to go to bed at noon because like you hit me, that's a quick and easy thing. Psychological punishment is like so much worth like I'm laying in this bed and I can't sleep. I'm not tired. It's the daytime. Yeah. Like she's crazy. I was terrified. Like that was, I was terrified to 
get in trouble in school after that. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. 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 Anything. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, um, my, <laughs> my mom did some stuff as well. Right. Like where I think the one, the one that stands out to me the most was she, she was really, really easy on me for the most part when it came to, she let me make a lot of my own mistakes and would essentially be like, okay, well, what'd you learn from that? Right. Like that was that she had a very good parenting style and I, I really appreciated what she did. I remember one day though, she was just so fed up with my bullshit and I'll, I'll explain exactly what I did. So I was sweeping the house and I didn't think to, I was just like, man, I don't actually want to sweep this stuff and like put it away in garbage and stuff. I'm just going to try and get rid of it. So we had this air grate in my house right. and I was like, take the shortcut. I was, yeah, I was 12 years old. I had no idea what the air grate was actually for. And so I just literally just swept the stuff in there. And she was so mad at me because you turn I could on have, that air. <laughs> exactly. I could have literally destroyed our entire like heating system in our house right there. There is so many issues that could have come out of it. So much money damage that could have come out of it. And all she did was look at me, say, I have nothing to say to you right now. And was just walked upstairs. That's so much worse. It was so much worse. So much worse. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'd rather just get hit. I mean, I reached a yeah. point definitely, you know, when, when you get old enough and big enough, it's like, uh, I don't mind getting hit. Like you'll hit me with a belt. It's going to sting for like five minutes, but like, yeah. I'm good to go after that. And then like, once those kind of punishments came into play, like I was like, yeah, I'm not really afraid of my dad. I am terrified of my mom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. So we're going to cut it a little bit shorter here today. Um, I think we can both agree that we, we both love our mamas. Thank you, mamas out there. But we're going to head into the interview because it is a bit of a longer interview. We, we felt like it was the best idea to keep this short a little bit through this intro today. So with that said, we're going to head to our last two ad reads of the day. The first is by ESR Embroidery. If you have been listening to the show, you'll know ESR as well. They are our first ever sponsor and creator of the custom apparel ATP line. But if you are looking for custom apparel for your own growing business, if you are looking to make personalized logos for you, your team, or just want some custom swag for yourself, come to ESR. We're talking shirts, hats, hoodies, and more. If you're looking for clothing built on ingenuitive designs and detailed work, you will not be disappointed by going to ESR. Find them on Instagram at ESR underscore embroidery for personalized inquiries or on Etsy for other work. Last but not least, we got our Down Dog Athletics. Down Dog Athletics, as you know, their mission is to make yoga and mental health more accessible to athletes so they can better improve their performance. Every yoga sequence is designed to mimic movement patterns seen in the gym and on the field. Every mindset technique is put through the lens of how an athlete sees the world. We believe that every athlete needs a balance between their light side and their dark side. We're programmed to be dark side dominant, always going harder and faster. But sometimes we need to tap into our light side by slowing down and practicing stillness. When you slow down, you gain more awareness. When you gain more awareness, you smooth out inefficiencies and become faster. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yes. Ah. 
Dorian and I are just we you can't see it right now, but Dorian and I are just grinning at each other. We love this. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. So if you want to find out how Down Dog Athletics can better help reach your goals, go to downdogathletics.com. There you can find programs that are going to help you for those mental and physical goals. All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Take care. And we really hope that you enjoy this next interview. I'm Francisco Buhanda. I'm an individual and couples therapist in the state of Washington. I work primarily in Seattle right now. A lot of my work is done uh, via telehealth video online, um, but mainly servicing, you know, uh, the, the Seattle community. And um, I've been in private practice for about five years, and I specialize in a variety of different modalities, but, you know, in populations. Specifically, I do therapy in both English and Spanish, and I work with a lot of um, cross-cultural couples as well as individuals also figuring out identities. And I work a lot with men um, specifically mm-hmm. in kind of um, integrating their own identities and continuing to live them out in a way that is authentic and not necessarily coerced mm-hmm. or forced, you know, underground um, because of the status quo, right? So and just allowing people to also have um, a breath within the dynamic of how they engage in relationships. So that's really a relational therapist in that regard. Um, And just, I love what I do. So I'm happy to be here today. Awesome. Thank you so much, Francisco. So with that said, the topic that I was hoping to cover today and the reason I brought you on is I want to go over the notion of the quote, just man up or man up, right? And so before we go too much into the topic itself, if you don't mind, could you go a little bit into the history of the the subject matter itself or potentially why that has been something that has been so prevalent in society today? Well, I mean, I think, you know, it depends on the culture, but there are all these particular standards, right? Mm-hmm. That people had to have to adhere to by or two in the context of their tribe and or culture right and masculinity has you know forced itself you know for various reasons um, a lot of which aren't healthy um, into a particular mode and perspective um, that limits its expression both verbally but also its uh, emotive expression right around feelings and such and so a lot of these especially in the united states where we've had you know, archetypal figures like John Wayne, right? That mm-hmm. I think really speaks to the way in which we see the ideal man, right? Um, which, you know, the ideal man is white and emotionless and also very much like, you know, uh, razor sharp and logical. And one of the reasons why that doesn't fit and why it could be toxic to both men and boys is because you know we're we're meant to be relational a logic itself is a left brain kind of uh, exercise right Mm -hmm. but we've always been a right brain species so what happens when we've entered you know these last couple of centuries and we're just giving you know this um the importance to our left side of the brain um and it comes to with like an expectation around what is acceptable in being human right it, like you need to look a certain way. It needs to 
you know, be proper, right? And so everybody always wants what seems like high class society or what is deemed, you know, um, of greater value. And so, you know, part of that is restraint, right? And I think, you know, we see that people who don't have restraint, men specifically who don't have restraint, you know, are categorized as bad, but we never really, you know, give a space for there to be um, a learning, a moment when people can learn how to regulate their emotions, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, how to be in healthy relationship. Um, and because we rob men, you know, boys really uh, of those particular experiences, you know, we lived in, in kind of a constantly traumatized state. And what that means is we shut down, right? So when mm-hmm. we talk about origin, especially in like early childhood, we're talking about boys really being taught that emotion, nurturing, you know, and neglect are actually a normal part of the way that we move throughout the world. And when I say neglect, a lot of people are like, ah, you know, and I, I speak to a lot of men about this where we're talking about, okay, we talk to them about your childhood, what, what happened? They're like, oh, my childhood was, was amazing. Everything was really great. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't doubt that for a second. Like, we're not here to blame someone for poor parenting skills. That's not the goal. The goal is to say, did you have particular needs, emotional needs as a child that weren't necessarily met? You know, and both women and yeah. men experience that. But men, to a higher degree, ex- are exposed, right, or lack thereof, to, you know, this uh, emotional desert, right, yeah. where there isn't a sense of, how do I, you know, learn how to handle these really difficult emotions? I mean, take, for example, a child. How many times do we enter a store and hear a child screaming? Mm-hmm. And we're like, that parent needs to control that child, right? Almost instantly we hear it. And of course, it's, it's a visceral reaction that we have because it's, it's built into our DNA to like try to see what, where's the child, right? We want to mm-hmm. help the tribe. But instead, we just kind of go, you know, that's not proper. Mm. But what if the child screaming out and learning is part of their process? They're having an emotional experience that's overwhelming, mm-hmm. you know? And when their parents are able to show them, this is how we handle these overwhelming experiences. One, knowing that I'm going to show up as a parent, knowing that you're going to have people in your life that are going to be able to show up for you then the child slowly starts to say, oh, okay, they're my people, I can regulate, right? This co-regulation happens. And then the child can integrate that experience as something positive because they got their need met. Mm-hmm. But what happens when boys are told, please shut up, you know, don't show emotion, just man up, right? It becomes really toxic. And when we use the word toxic, it gets used, you know, quite a bit in this culture. But I want to define that. And toxic just means that like, it ferments. Mm-hmm. And what we ferment, you know, unless we do something with it, right, throw it into the compost, use it to compost, um, i.e. to grow things. Um, instead, it, it stays there and festers, you know. Mm. And so with a lot of men, when we look at, and we can talk a, a whole lot more about this, because I'm sure there'll be some questions. But when you think about attachment theory, which is really the basis of the psychological field right now, a lot of um, different, you know, efficacious modalities that are being used in therapy and in mental health use this idea of, you know, attachment theory. 
And one of the things that we've learned from attachment theory is when you don't have that nurturance, it's really pivotal. That is, you're getting your emotional needs met as a child, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't have those things, then the child learns to not expect them. Now, here's the key. It doesn't mean that we don't need them. Mm-hmm. It just means that we shut it down. I see. Right? And so a lot of men, you know, and, it, and it's prevalent a lot in the United States, but a lot of men tend to shut down, that is, to either shut down their attachment needs. So they either do that by compartmentalizing their emotions or completely disassociating from them. Absolutely. Right? And so how are you going to have a healthy relationship when you can't emote, you yeah. know, or where it's dangerous, you know, a lot of men grow up with, with fathers who also didn't know how to emotionally process anything mm-hmm. um, or at least significant things. And so what we see are, it's like a repetitive generational kind of uh, trauma, really, you know, we call that more like transgenerational, right? Mm-hmm. Because it just keeps perpetuating itself. And, you know, I think for men, it becomes really difficult to know how do I connect? I have no guide. You know, this isn't the days of old where we had people that we relied upon, right? Mm-hmm. To teach us a trade, to be mentors, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have a tribe, right? Of like, you know, you know 20 other men who mm-hmm. we can like piecemeal together, right? These could be archetypes for us to help us, yeah. right? Understand how to be a man, how to emote, right? Mm-hmm. But instead what we get are, are very stoic men. And so, you know, I think that there's a couple of writers who have talked about, you know, the need, the need to understand and to balance out this, this kind of masculinity has led many a men to kind of experience themselves in a more, you know, feminine light. You know, they either have mm-hmm. better feminine relationships with their mother or with, with other women because they want to learn. They understand that there's something missing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's wonderful. And the goal is how do you integrate both sides? How do you gain the experience and understanding of being able to learn about emotions, process that information, and kind of have some level of vulnerability while also, you know, assuming some level of the role of caretaker of a person who holds space and creates a container. Yeah, I think there's a lot of Jungian analysts who talk about both of those aspects that I think we can definitely get into. But yeah, as a starter, you know, (laughs) we'll use that to absolutely kick that off. So going back to our culture specifically, I really wanted to highlight a little bit today about the idea of American exceptionalism right? Mm -hmm. and how that has factored into the male societal dynamic that we have currently in the United States. Right. Yeah. So with that understanding, and I want to bring this as well, given recent events a little bit into an intersectionality as well, right. Is, is how do these ideas of American exceptionalism and, you know, male, John Wayne syndrome, let's go ahead and call it that for now. How does that play into people of color or minority groups themselves? I mean, American exceptionalism comes from the idea that like, really the the primary term is is a sense of um, entitlement, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the entitlement comes from, you know, the Calvinists who came from England and they had a really kind of clear understanding for themselves, um, austere in some ways, understanding of their faith, right? That God is in charge of everything, that like this is the way it's supposed to be. And they really thought to themselves that they were the new, um, you know, like... They call the new Israelites. The new Israelites, exactly. And so part of it is this idea that like they were... They were going to this promised land and everything was for them. God had, you mm-hmm. know, deemed it so. And so I think and there's a, there's a lot of things within uh, U.S. mainstream culture that is still deeply impacted and, and where the structure itself has been sustained by the foundation, right, of a lot of these Puritan white kind of beliefs. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that is the superiority, right? Like God deemed it so, like the superiority of, of um, you know the the white family and that particular kind of religious and austere kind of uh, theological underpinnings, mm-hmm. and so man, if we have that as a basis, right? And like, yeah. what does it mean to be male? And a lot of things that we look at, um, even our nonprofit sector, like there were so many things that were seen as to how does a a, a society function with in that particular religious paradigm and so much of what we do today within the states is something that was kind of like created right from those particular ideologies and so it's really hard i mean the american psychological association just in uh, 2018 released guidelines on you know providing excuse me services to men and boys you know and what that would mean Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think it was the fourth or fifth, you know, principle and guiding practice is that, you know, as psychologists, which I'm not a psychologist, I'm a therapist, but as people doing the mental health work, you know, you have to be cognizant of the way that power and privilege play into, right, your mm-hmm. own identity, your own masculine identity, right, as a, you know, self-identified male. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the bit, right? When we're talking about some of these issues with people of color or LGBTQ+, you know, a lot of what ends up happening is that when we talk about oppression, it really can't be understood when we're continuing to view the world, right? I.e. the United States world mm-hmm. in the context or even the rest of the world in the context of this American exceptionalism that, that we are the best, right? But yep. is it we as a collective we, or is it, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxon folks, you know, people? Absolutely. So I think that's something that definitely comes up and it feeds into our narrative around masculinity, right? Um, because again, we have some like a, a false narrative, right? That doesn't apply to us today that we're still trying to you know live into um martin luther king jr one of the things he said is he's like i'm really dismayed by or disappointed in the moderate white person Mm -hmm. you know and it's because they would provide they prefer order you know yes yeah and and i think that's what really anybody men or you know people of color uh, who are kind of diverting from the norm 
part of what's happening is that they're told to get back in line. Yeah. Right. And, and then, so people stay silent and, and, you know, something that's really prevalent within kind of like, um, you know, male circles and, and the reality of mental health for men is that there's a significant amount of depression because mm-hmm. when you can't, when you have no context for how to share emotions, when everything around you, you know, either tells you to be aggressive, right? Yeah. And, and aggression, I think there's, there's a time and a place for it. But when everything is kind of like this very clear delineation that this is how I have to be, this is how I have to act, you know, these are the norms that I have to follow to be seen as attractive. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's a whole paradigm that we're trying to live into, right? And so everything that we're doing is based on a condition. And we're also expecting that if we live into, right, what society tells us to, that we're going to reap, you know, what we sow. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that they come up empty, like anybody in, in this very clear system that doesn't favor, I mean, it favors, you know, white folks, but, um, and the white man, but I think it's just trying to keep order, right? And this yeah. is the type of order. And so, you know, any man who steps outside of that um, is, is really seen as, as, as weird, as different, um, mm-hmm. and it's a shock to people's system, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Yeah, alluding to your your idea of getting in and out of that line or staying true to that line, it must be really difficult. And as a white male, I don't understand this because I do have those privileges that were set up for me from birth. But it must be very difficult to, you know, the minute that you stray out of that line, right, that you immediately are told not only to get back into line, but the emotions that you that are elicited out of straying past that line are immediately shut down as well. So you're, it's almost a double whammy in the sense of you are being hit twice by saying, stay in line based on who you are as a person, but not only that, keep your emotions in line as well. That just, that just seems very difficult. It is. It is. It's incredibly challenging because there's no way out. You just have Mm -hmm. to like grin and bear it and wait, you know, but what are you waiting for? Like that's also, there's no light at the end of the tunnel on that, right? And so I think a lot of what ends up happening is there's this weird misguided anger, right? Mm Because yeah, there's anger to the system, but what do you do? You just, you know, you get angry at other people in your life or even worse, you know, you systematize it. And it's as if like, you know, someone who is obviously trying to not or not even trying to they're just not part of that norm because their color of their skin is different and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they play into right a level of discomfort that we're not willing to touch we're not willing to engage Mm -hmm. and because of that what ends up happening is that we create a bigger problem because we're projecting onto other people our discomfort instead of actually handling it ourselves managing it taking ownership of it opening the dialogue right and not just pointing to other people, things or systems mm-hmm. and, you know, claiming ourselves the victim of that particular system, but, but voicing it, using the tools that maybe we don't have, but that we can learn, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. how do I get to this place and having a curiosity around how to get there? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think with the, the recent riots and 
and things that we've seen in the news recently in mind, the frustration from trying to keep that line consistent must bring people to a certain boiling point as well, right? Where they, they don't really know how to emote, right? They're not really sure how to emote. So they, they find a way to express themselves. And sometimes it's just not a, whether you agree with it or not, right? It's just not, it's not always going to be something that is beneficial, right? Or good, quote unquote. I mean, yeah, I think sometimes too, the lack of emotional experience lends us to not being self-aware or mindful, Mm -hmm. you know, in our masculinity as men to, you know, what the impact of those things are, right? For example, Mm -hmm. like anger, right? I work with a lot of men around anger, anger management, understanding their anger. And because you have no emotional literacy, right? you're, Mm -hmm. You're unaware, right? There's no attentiveness around it because you were never taught it. And that's not excuse. It's not an excuse, but it's something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. That what ends up happening is that we again we have strong emotions that we don't know what to do with, right? Yeah. And so an example of that is you know anger is a powerful emotion. It's a boundary setting emotion, right? Mm-hmm. But it it can also be a secondary emotion, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, an example of that would be like when I'm scared, I get angry, right? Mm-hmm. Well, primary experience their emotional experience being had is one of which i am expressing fear like i'm experiencing fear but instead of expressing fear and saying i'm I'm afraid how can we plan around this how can i create safety for myself and for those that i love we instead you know invoke anger right Mm -hmm. and again if we invoke anger in a positive way then it can be a good boundary setter but instead what we invoke is rage right when we invoke is like you know kind of like flying off the handle and those type of things. Because again, we kind of like, we're also given the opportunity within society, right? Mm -hmm. To express that, which, you know, if we were to put a woman in our stead, and if a woman were to do that, everybody would look at that woman and say it was improper. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when Mm -hmm. we're talking about equality, it makes no sense, right? Um, So why is it that a woman can can't express the same way we can because it's improper so why is it improper for a woman and not a man right so there are all these double standards that we lay out and it's driven by the very culture right that we're in um, and how we end up perpetuating it absolutely and just to return to one of the comments that you made um could you clarify boundary setting for me as far as emotions yeah do you want to what specifically around boundary setting? You so want? you had said that anger is a boundary setting emotion. I believe. Yeah, I mean, like any emotion, right? They're all, they're all messengers. They're all there to tell us something, right? We often overly involve ourselves in that emotional experience, right? As opposed to saying, what is it trying to tell me, right? And okay. how, how can I prepare adequately for what it's telling me, right? And, and anger is one of those where it's just like anger comes up when a boundary has been crossed in us, right? Mm-hmm. And if we haven't actually set that boundary with someone else, right, and we feel that anger, then we need to be mindful of the anger and then, you know, retroactively say, actually, there's a boundary here. And, you know, okay. there's a violation that happened and, you know, there's some healing maybe that needs to be done or, 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 or some follow-up, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But this is important. Instead, we like go after we blame you know we say all sorts of different things that we don't mean we criticize we we have some level of contempt right 
because we build up that kind of, you know, reservoir, if you will, or, you know, check those boxes mm-hmm. of, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep it to myself. Right. Again, the emotional experience of a lot of men and a lot of women in different ways. But what ends up happening with anger is then it becomes explosive. Right. Yep. Because we're like boundaries been crossed too many times. But, you know, good boundary setting is like knowing my worth and my value in the beginning and knowing what's important to me and not allowing other people to tell me what's important to me, but me getting really clear on what that is. And then in a loving way, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of drawing that line. And, you know, we, we just have to get clear on what role we're playing at any given time. You know, are we playing into it in the role of drama? You know, and, and, and what does it look like? And I think vulnerability is a big part of, you know, being able to share that emotional experience and set boundaries, you know, yeah, can someone absolutely. really, will someone love us, you know, mm-hmm. and can we withhold like, here's, here's a healthy boundary, right? And mm-hmm. a healthy boundary is often misunderstood because I think there are people too who set boundaries, who think they're setting boundaries when actually they're setting up a wall, right? Where okay. they can't and when they're where they're right and so we really need to weigh that out where it's just like you know where is their accountability overall and how is their true growth right mm-hmm. and and men you know i always take the stance of like you have to be radically accountable right and responsible so we're always waiting for someone else to take up responsibility or like any normal human being we we when we feel wounded or hurt we want someone else to to kind of follow up with us but the reality is, is that we need to take care of ourselves, right? We need to take care mm-hmm. of that specifically ourselves by claiming that responsibility and recognizing that someone might not show up, but you are going to show up to that particular dynamic, you know, regardless of that other person. And, and part of that is working in that avoidance. It's an avoidance of con- conflict. It's an avoidance mm-hmm. of an emotional experience. And it's also what's celebrated. Let me tell you this, like, you know, very famous Brene Brown, right? Uh, we probably know either a lot about her. We've heard of her, um, some of her books, right? Gifts of Imperfection, Rising Strong, those type of things. She's a vulnerability researcher, qualitative researcher. And, you know, when she wrote her first book, her research was primarily based um, exclusively around women, women mm-hmm. and vulnerability. And during one of her book signings, she, she says this story um, in one of her books, actually. But during one of her book signings, she had this woman approach her with three books. And, you know, Brene signed all three books and the woman was very lovely, very grateful, and then walked away and proceeded to, you know, take, you know, the arm of what was then her husband and you know, she said, let's go, honey. And he's like, no, give me a minute. I'm going to talk to Brene. And, you know, she, she just didn't want to be anywhere near it. So she left, it seems like, I think. But, you know, she, he approached Brene and she was already in her mind thinking, he's going to say something, so I'm prepping myself. Mm-hmm. And he asked the question, you know, why do you only study women? And she said, she was like, really happy with herself she's like well because there's not a space for women and this is really important work to 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 discover kind of the vulnerability that's necessary um in order for women to really express themselves you know he's like huh so you don't want to study men she's like no i'm not that's not part of the research that i'm doing not really interested in studying men and vulnerability you know and he goes you know isn't that convenient 
because the three women whose book you just signed were my wife and two daughters, and they would rather see me die than fall off of my white horse. And then he walked away. And, you know, from that day forward, she started studying men. Mm -hmm. Uh, Needless to say, it left an impact on her. And I think part of what that really illustrates is the fact that, you know, it's, yeah, it's a different, maybe kind of vulnerability, but there are also a lot of similarities within the vulnerability that both men and and women, you know, um, need to engage in, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, In order for them to be able to kind of grow and also teach other people and be in healthy relationships, right? Not destructive ones, Um, not relationships that perpetuate the same kind of prison, for lack of a better term, you know, that we find ourselves in. Yeah, absolutely. Did did that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, no, it definitely did. It, uh, I think the, the things I thought of almost immediately too is it's, and I like that that quote specifically where he says um, they'd rather see me die than fall off my white horse because as a, as a male myself, um, just to go a little bit in my own subjective narrative, right, is that idea of, of strength and security and confidence and things that I have been told consistently are requisite, not necessarily just like a part of being a man, but requisite to be a man. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like that has to a certain extent, to be honest with you, has damaged my psyche going forward. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, do you feel like you've gone through a similar struggle throughout your life? Oh yeah, definitely. Especially as, you know, a Latinx, um, identified male, like I just, you know, and there are a lot of privileges that, that I also see in myself and carry that I have to kind of take to account for mm-hmm. having said that though yeah it's really it becomes really difficult because mm-hmm. you're trying to understand where is there a different narrative right yeah. and the only way through that is to get really clear right or what are my values what do i espouse you know when we're little if we were exposed to any kind of religious context you know and for some men they weren't but we're exposed to some type of value system within the family system. You know, mm-hmm. some of that might be religious in nature, some of that might not be. But we're all exposed to some, right, mm-hmm. kind of values that govern the body of the family, right? Um, and if we go through trauma, sometimes we, we're not, right? Certain situations and family dynamics um, don't allow that, right, mm-hmm. to happen. We're, we're kind of like, devoid of, of, you know, uh, kind of a clear, consistent understanding of values. But, you know, if we had that privilege, uh, then there's a consistent, right, uh, for the most part, a value system. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that part of what causes that hurt and that pain is this kind of constant battle that mm-hmm. takes place, right, with that value. And saying, how do I integrate this? Because I can't just dispose of it. I have Mm -hmm. to put it somewhere. You know, I have to heal that wound, right? Even if it's toxic, right? Even if it it was unhealthy, even if I understand it now as not being the best approach, but knowing that my parents really did the best they could with what they had, you know, all of that's very true, but we still have to be, again, responsible and accountable to that end. And so Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes is a a double whammy. (laughs) 
mm-hmm. for some men is realizing that like we find ourselves being victim to a reality, right? That perpetuates our own isolation mm-hmm. and lack of fulfillment, but then feeling like we also have to take the mantle, right? If you will, figuratively and, of ownership, yeah. right? And we have to say, how, how do I create the type of masculine identity, right? That is healthy, that helps promote and lift up those around me, but doesn't seek to uh, be so competitive, which is, uh, you know, another paradigm, right? <laughs> Within kind of toxic mas- masculinity is that everything is competitive, right? It's a, and it, you, you become a human doing, not a human mm-hmm. being, right? It's a very results oriented, which is very logical. It's not very human, right? Mm-hmm. It's like going through the pandemic. It's like I heard from a lot of people that companies were really compassionate the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then they were like, okay, business as usual, yep. you know, after the first couple of weeks or month. And it's just like, oh no, this is where like the mental health issues start kicking, you know, because people are in isolation. People are in close proximity to the same people for an extended periods of time. So mm-hmm. people cannot avoid some of the the pain that they have suffered and some people are just in isolation while dealing with those things um and that causes a huge strain you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah those would be some of the things i think that that come immediately to mind great yeah i I, and i think that's that's important to note right is i guess i'm trying to form form a way to kind of understand this a little bit as well through other lenses right is i i know for myself that it has made it increasingly difficult because you do feel like you are in charge of making the change to to be the the man that you are supposed to be right when sometimes it feels like you you aren't really certain about how you're going to do that and i guess my question for you here is when somebody is feeling like they have a less of a support system or they, they have to go on it by themselves, right? What would you tell somebody who is struggling through that, that process themselves at a young age, especially? That's a really good question. I, Cause you, there was a couple of things that I had thought of as you were speaking, but then you, you threw in like at a young age and at a young age, like that's really difficult. Um, you know, mm-hmm. cause at a young age, you really want to find a mentor, someone mm-hmm. who, can at least hold space for your growing narrative at that point in time and who can really dedicate time to seeing you, right? To witnessing you, Mm -hmm. Um, especially if it's in ways where you feel like you long for that kind of connection with another male Mm -hmm. and you're not getting it, right? So, you know, luckily, I think um, even though there was a lot of difficulty in trying to assess what kind of man am I going to be growing up, I did seek out actively like different men, right? Men of color, uh, men part of like different groups and communities that really kind of exemplified characteristics, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, lived values that I really felt like I wanted to grow in. Mm -hmm. That was part of it, was realizing too that I, you know, I suck in these particular areas. Like I don't know how to do X, Y, and Z. You know, um, I need other, other men to help me understand. And when men weren't available, which they aren't often, you know, like I think male mentors are, they're, they're scarce, right? Mm-hmm. And so 
when we are able, when we aren't able to find them, then looking for, you know, the female counterparts that can help us to understand what it's like to live as a human being within those values, right? Yeah. Because it all comes back to values. What kind of value am I standing for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of the reasons why stoicism, right, has become such a like discipline for a lot of people, a lot of secular people, mm-hmm. because it has a level of values, right, that it espouses and, and kind of like a, a practice that goes along with it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, it, but it's very, very popular among secular men. And I think that's why, because like we're, people are looking for, specifically men are looking for ways in which to be taught about different values, right? That are super important. I think even one of the best books that I could recommend that I'm like rereading right now because I just love Bell Hooks is um, All About Love. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Okay, no, I am not actually. So Bell Hooks, All About Love for all the listeners out there. So I highly recommend it. But, you know, even her chapters, she just goes over different values, right? Mm -hmm. And I love it because it's in, the perspective of an African-American woman, right? Seeing what really needs to kind of happen within culture and within masculinity and how we change that. And sometimes having that perspective, liberating ourselves from needing to always read from the same type of people, from the same type of mindset, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like growing up and only eating chicken nuggets, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, no, you need to be exposed to it all. And that being exposed to it really lets you orchestrate and, you know, form your own value system without needing to to subscribe to one. You know, something that's really important too about this that I think I've thought back to a couple with a couple of your questions is, you know, game theory. So game Mm, theory, mm -hmm. you know, comes from transactional analysis. And it's this idea that like, well, I should say one of the games that they found that human beings play is called the drama triangle, right? And there's three different types of, of, well, there's four actually, but three different types of main players. One's a a rescuer, another one's a persecutor, and then the victim. And then Mm -hmm. the fourth one is the bystander, right? And so all of these kind of play into a very triangulated, right? experience of what it's like moving through certain things and i always love to say it's like it's a little bit like you know the the fairy tale of a soldier right Mm -hmm. saving the damsel in distress for the dragon right so the you know soldier in this particular case we're going to give them a gender we'll give them the traditional gender in these fairy tales um which is male and so we'll call them the rescuer right? And then we'll call the, the dragon, the, the villain, i.e. the persecutor. And then we'll call the damsel in distress, the victim, right? Mm-hmm. And so the way the roles play out is that, you know, you're, you're vying for the one of the rules of the game is that you're always seeking to become the victim because the victim gets their needs met with ever, without ever having to name them. Mm. Right? And so we take on, I think, sometimes in the drama of life, right? this we become triangulated in people's drama and issues right and we feel fulfilled and we adapt to help people a typical thing that men do is that you know they they, they want to do what they want to fix it right mm-hmm. um which is stereotypical it's not typical of men per se it's stereotypical but okay they want to fix it and so they're taking on this mantle the rescuer right 
because then they'll get kind of these accolades from the victim, right? Yeah, this absolutely. person who can't do it for themselves. It's like, well, that's not necessarily true. We have to jump off that wagon because if they can't do it themselves, then they're going to have to ask us, right? Mm -hmm. Just like we need to ask other people, name what our needs are, where our boundaries are, and then be really adaptive to figuring out how we're going to get that need met not just relinquishing our agency, right? Or having other people relinquish their agency so we can meet their need so that we can feel better about ourselves, right? And women do that often too, you know, this, mm. this over-functioning that happens. But at least for men, it's this idea that like, how do we take responsibility while not assuming the responsibility of needing to be the hero? Like that's not the role that we play. Because mm -hmm. at a certain point, right, we're going to lose. We're going to lose that game. Yeah, exactly. And, and we often play the victim as stoic people who don't emote. We play mm -hmm. the game by never saying, because we have no idea how to name, that we have needs, right? Yeah. And so we're just feeding the problem. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's a big issue overall in how we approach situations is that we're actually, from the start, perpetuating the very same kind of structure, stereotypical structure that keeps everybody bound and imprisoned, right? One of the things that I did want to take time to talk to you about was, you know, attachment theory. And that, like, there's so many good books on attachment theory. Mm -hmm. um, there's one book called Attached, right? So highly recommend it. But, you know, one of the things that we learned from attachment theory is that there's one type, like there's four different types of attachment styles, right? And one mm -hmm. is secure, right? And that let's assume that particular child who is securely attached received, you know, a certain amount, consistent amount of love, care, attention, and their basic needs being met, right? The mm -hmm. parents attuned to that child in a way where that child felt seen, heard, known, understood, and where they could also process, right? Their lived experience to then go on to be adults that could do the same. Mm -hmm. right but you do that on repeat right it's not just that that happened once as a kid it's like it those are parents on. who consistently provide that right okay. you, you say? i was going to ask does that continue on through adulthood or does that it show? does okay yeah i mean whether mostly it's just that you, there's a pattern that's created right by okay. the parents in giving those tools to the child and so the child then starts to see the world through this particular lens right mm -hmm. But then there's three different attachment styles that we'll call insecurely attached, right? Those three insecure, one of them is called, you know, avoidant. And this child didn't get their emotional needs met, right? And so they just shut down. They shut down their attachment needs. They compartmentalize and disassociate from their feelings. But what ends up happening is that that particular child ends up having a fear around being engulfed. Mm. Right. Okay. And here comes the kicker, because like part of what we're starting to understand is that the reason why men might you know, walk away from really intense situations or why they want to fix it is because those are adaptive measures to try to put a kibosh, you know, to 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 um, solve the situation. Mm -hmm. Right. In a, a context where they're here we go. You know, I, I don't have to deal with this problem anymore. So it's mm -hmm. not going to consume me. It's not going to overwhelm me. Because remember, they, there isn't a real understanding of how to process emotion. So mm -hmm. if there's too much of it, they literally feel like they lose 
themselves, right? Okay. They're just in this swirl of emotion. And so, um, and sometimes it, it feels like death, right? So yeah. you've ever seen like cartoons or, or, or movies where the man, you know, falls asleep in the middle of a, of a fight or an argument, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we always laugh at it or think it's really ridiculous, but actually that's, you know, a hypofreeze. So the body's going into this state where it feels like it's dying. Mm-hmm. So it's preparing itself for death. And then you just like fall asleep because you can't, you know, it's not important to you. Nothing inside your body is maybe you activate it once, but then, you know, after that initial activation, you immediately go down yeah. right into this level where you freeze, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about survival strategies and um, we're talking about fight, flight, or freeze, right? Fawning is another one. Um, so it's an inability to process as far as that, that situation goes, the emotions that occur from the, I guess, not having a solution right away or excuse me, I guess it's just not, not being able to process any of the emotion, right? Cause we want okay. the emotion to go away. And if we okay. can fix it, what can I do? How can I do it? Right. Yeah. Which we're often like, if we learn a little bit more, what we often have to do in order to remedy the situation is actually sit and listen mm-hmm. is actually sit and, and uh, affirm and validate and reassure. Yeah. You know, that's not a typical type of man thing to do, right? No. It's not taught within masculinity, right? And it can make men feel really uncomfortable because there's a lot of emotion, right? Mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting that you use the example of finding a solution as an avoidance as well. Mm-hmm. Because the, the irony to me, once again, this is probably going back to how I have been conditioned my, my, during my life, is that the finding a solution has always felt like no you're not avoiding it you are finding the solution but in actuality it sounds like the fact that you are just trying to rush to find a solution you are in fact avoiding the confrontation or the emotional experience yeah exactly and you know part of it too is how how do we remedy the situation we mm-hmm. think making it go away quickly is remedying the situation mm-hmm. but you know fixing it could also be just listening like we're just saying that the adaptive measure which can get us out of that hot water right if you will is better if we do x y and z mm-hmm. right um but you know it, it really requires you know some some kind of like um facing it if you will now having said that that particular child is avoidant right and so it doesn't mean that all men are avoidant but that i would say is like the predominant cultural stereotype right? Mm -hmm. That we breed men into, right? Because they're devoid of having had their emotional needs met, right? And then the opposite of that would be like an anxiously attached individual, right? And that child did receive love and did receive attention, but not consistent enough. And so it's like tasting, you know, something really sweet and you've only tasted it twice and you just talk about it all the time, you know, mm-hmm. it's not some, so you remember it and, and you remember it fondly, but you always feel like it's out of reach, right? Mm-hmm. I had this amazing gelato in Italy once, you know, and I've never been able to get, get back, right? And so there's this longing. And so unlike the avoidant who turns off their attachment needs in order to survive, the anxious child turns on their attachment needs because they feel like they have to do better in order to receive the love, right? I see. Okay. That their parent um, is only giving them, right, intermittently. 
And so, you know, some of those moments could be really emotional, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, it comes with really intense emotion. Again, never having had the opportunity to truly know how do I process these emotions well? What are the examples within my life that I could see that those things are missing, right? And lastly, the third child who's insecure is what we would call disorganized. Um, and they're disorganized because they've gone through some type of abuse, right? So sexual, verbal, um, psychological, yeah, physical. So, mm -hmm. but what we've found too within the last two decades is that um, emotional abuse and extreme neglect um, fits into that, right? So there's neglect with the avoidant child, right? Emotional mm -hmm. neglect. But if it's extreme to an extent, right, the child can also like really have a hard time integrating, right? They're disorganized. So really hard time integrating how to be in relationship with other people, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and again, these are silent stressors and these are important things to like explore, to have healthy relationships, to know what to expect, mm -hmm. to know how to process, you know, really difficult situations. But, you know, if you don't do it, it's, it's going to be really hard, too, to face things like racism, right? Mm -hmm. And your own privilege, right? You're not willing to look at it because no one, right, within your family line really gave you the tools and said, you know what, Jimmy, like, this is super important, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah. And I also think that, like, with certain types of men, we hyper- you know, sexualize them, or we do any number of things that can, can continues to perpetuate some of the atrocities that men do against women, mm -hmm. um, simply because, you know, we're trying to live into a stereotype that um, is, is damaging on, yeah. on all fronts, right, to our society. And so, you know, going back to your original piece around uh, just being a man, you know, yeah. eh, a lot of people... Um, who are really diving into that question, especially within the last decade or two, have just asked, what does that even mean? You know, mm -hmm. and why is that different than being a girl? And why are we so gender normative within this world instead of talking about it in a way of like what makes us a healthy human, right? Yeah. And it's a bit of both, right? You can't deny one over the other. Um, both conversations need to be had insofar as like what is healthy masculinity as much as what is what makes up a, a good person, right? What are some of those core values that help us live in a, a growth kind of mindset in society? I can completely see why there would be a crossroad between values when it comes to not only being a man per se, right? But just being a good person consistently as well. Um, and I think the the interesting part to note is that for somebody in their, let's say, formative age, right? I'll take myself, for example. I'm 27 years old. And to this day, even though I did not have a religious upbringing, mm. I still find myself continuously looking at my values. And a lot of people will ask me, what are your values? And oftentimes, I find myself admittedly not having a great answer to them yeah and i guess the the question i have for you is you know as somebody who may not have an answer for okay that question of what are your values is it okay to not have an answer for that question the short answer is yes as long as you're in process and actively mm -hmm. working on them 
right? That we go through iterations. It's not that we have to have it perfect. Another mm-hmm. thing about, you know, the society is that there's this like strive for perfectionism, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're the best. Again, that competition that really just yeah. sets us up for failure from the get go, um, as opposed to it being more trial and error. It's like, let's figure this out. Like, we got to take it one step at a time and see what we're learning throughout the process. So that would be a big one. Hey, everybody. If you were wondering why that interview seemed to stop so abruptly is because we had actually went well over the allotted time and Francisco had to go to work with one of his many clients. He will be back on in the future for a second portion of an interview that we plan on speaking a little bit more about people of color and how some of the traits of masculinity have an effect on them. So look forward to that in the future. But with that being said, I do want to wrap up a little bit about what we had to say today, right? Um, And I don't think it would be really doing it justice without giving a little bit of a closure to our current conversation today. Um, And what I mean by that is is the importance of, of what American exceptionalism and what some of the topics that we had spoken about during the interview, as well as the intro today, and how they affect our society continuously, right? When we think about the, the average, once again, going back to American exceptionalism, I'm going to go ahead and hold that as a heightened idea because it does define in more of a Puritan value situation, right? Where we have that type of Calvinistic idea of what it is to be a man, right? And once again, as well, going back to what Dorian was saying with how there's not a lot of people that as far as, you know, superheroes, for instance, right, that he was able to identify with. I think that's an important notion as well. So when we look at what masculinity means, right, I think it's important to make sure that we define that masculinity is something that is completely different to so many different cultures and being a society that is made up of so many cultures, we have to acknowledge that there is going to be many different iterations of what that is going to look like. Secondly, I really do think it's very important that as men, right, or self-identifying men, right, that we take time to be able to look intrinsically in how we are acting as men and how we are letting any type of American exceptionalism seep into our ideals, how we're trying to, are we trying to make sure that we are keeping our emotions at bay? Are we holding in anger? Are we holding in any type of emotions that might be quote unquote toxic, right? And how is that going to affect the rest of society? Because, and this is, once again, this is something that I have as a continuous thought is just imagine if we create a world of, of inclusivity for men being allowed to feel secure in themselves, right? One which they felt it was okay to seek help and furthermore look to improve themselves. I, I think that this is a world that will not only help anyone who identifies as male around the United States, but everybody else included. And I think that was something that we actually touched on multiple times today in brief moments at least, is that we as men have the the upper hand to a certain extent, right? Especially white men. Let's go ahead and clarify that. White men have a privilege and a upper hand in society. 
And if we are able to check ourselves and able to keep ourselves in line as far as our emotions and how to properly communicate with people, because at the end of the day, that type of communication is only going to come from somebody who is comfortable enough to have that type of communication. And if you are able to be aligned with your own emotions and your own needs, that's going to be a little bit easier. And this is something that I've taken from an understanding from listening to people such as Francisco. Um, Not to say that I'm any expert on the subject matter, but if we were to able to look into ourselves and be able to admit faults, admit that we need to express emotions, admit that we need to be able to express ourselves continuously, but in a, you know, a more continuous and non-judgmental manner, and especially one that does not seek to chastise others for having different points of view or, you know, taking blame, being defensive, things like that, where we're really able to open ourselves up to the needs of other people in a very intersectional world that we live in. And let's be honest, we live in a very white patriarchal society continuously. So if we're able to do that, just imagine the type of conversations that we could have for movements like Black Lives Matter, which is very prevalent today. But even furthermore, recognizing that there's so many other movements out there that need to be addressed at some point in the future and hopefully will be addressed continuously going forward. I think that's an important part of what we do. And it is something that if we were able to take the responsibility on and be able to have those type of conversations, be able to talk to women, be able to talk to people of color who are also women, people who do not identify as a certain gender, who identify in different, you know, very opposition to what the standard Puritan beliefs were from centuries ago, right? It's going to make it easier for us to be able to have a better holistic society. That is my personal view. We are going to create a better holistic society by being able to be able to feel emotions and to be able to check and balance our own notions of masculinity. So thank you everybody for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed not only the initial portion with Dorian and I, but also really the interview with Francisco. I thought it was fantastic. So if you like the episode, please remember to rate, subscribe, and like on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, and Spotify. We are all on those platforms currently. So we would be more than happy to have any type of support coming from you guys. We really love what we do here at ATP, and we want to continue to be able to do it in the future. And any type of support from you guys is only going to help to make that a real, (laughs) excuse me, is going to help to make that a reality. Thank you again.